Hello everyone, Michael Ray, all the way from Australia with my posh accent on episode number 11, coming to you from the Southern Hemisphere in sunny Australia with my Northern Hemisphere co-host. Reham on this very, very snowy morning. Um, we're going to be talking today about double standards, which sort of bleeds into a little bit of hypocrisy, but it also, I think, trans is a little bit into envy as well. Could all be wrapped up in there as well. So with the double standards, I think the reason we find it frustrating is it's an unfair judgment where we feel like it's a little bit like when you're a kid, but, you know, she didn't get in trouble when she did it. Why am I getting in trouble when I did it? And, you know, he got two lollies and I only got one lolly. How is that? I think it comes down to uh, fairness or a standard of expectations of uh, consequences or outcomes for the same effort. So one of the main ones that I see a lot of double standards is men and women. And um, women and men are treated so differently. Girls and boys are treated differently. Um you know, we, I think it was Barack Obama said we need to change the standard that, you know, praises girls for being demure and boys for being bold. And, you know, a woman's sexuality is something to be feared and a man's is something to be celebrated. Um, Definitely double standards in there. You know, yeah. you know a, a, a Jack the Lad, as we would say in the UK, is, you know, something a bit proud of and, uh, you know, a promiscuous or scarlet woman is is the opposite and uh, the double standard there. The other double standard that comes to mind with uh, boys and girls is, oh, he's going to break some hearts, that, that boy, because he's good looking and her, you're going to have to lock her up in a convent until she's 30 because... So they're the sort of double standards that are just uh, ridiculous and uh, need to be counted out. In a recent survey... I think it said 70% of uh, women believe that uh, girls are treated differently to boys and only 60% of uh, men believe that, the, and I'm talking about children, their children, that only 60% of men think that um, boys are treated differently to girls. So still huge numbers. But one question I'd like to ask you, Rianne, I'll take that on fact that they are, and they definitely are, and some of our gender stereotypes start so young. We have girl toys and boy toys rather than toys. There's a great organisation. Uh, I think it's out of the UK, so we uh, just let toys be toys. Yeah. Um, so we have the blue for the boys and the trucks, and they have a boys section and a girl section in, in the toy shops. So given that we'll take it anecdotally, that we do treat boys and girls differently. The question I'd like to ask you is, should we treat our boys more like girls or our girls more like boys to get rid of it? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, it, it triggered for me the statistic that I remember reading about where uh, so much more money is being put into concentration around girls emotional and physical health, mental, emotional and physical health here in the UK. Uh, and I think only 13% was going to boys. 
Um, and so, you know, they'll, they'll send them to the GP, they'll send them to the doctors to get tested and to be checked as teenagers or young adults, um, much more than with the boys. And, and that impacts the way that they perceive themselves, their body image, and what toys they choose as well. Because if the toy rep represents who they are and what they look like or who they want to be, then that is what they're going to seek. So in reference to toys, um, it, I, I am, I'm of the mindset having raised a boy myself, not dealing with whether it was girl toys or boy toys at all. I didn't even introduce blue and pink into the equation and nor did he know the difference until he started nursery. So for me, it was a gender-free home um, because that's how he designed it. And if he wanted to play with trucks and dolls, he played with trucks and dolls. If he wanted to play with um, dinosaurs and color um, with pink, he colored with pink until he realized pink is for girls and I don't want pink and purple is just too girly. And, and you know, so the language came from the conditioning in schools or in the education system, it didn't come from my home. Um, so I would be completely against making it specific to boys and girls. One, uh, for, the, for the basic reason that boys and girls at such a young age don't know the difference. So we are taught how to be racist. We are taught how to be gender-based. We are taught how to be whatever ism that there is in the world, we're taught it. We're not born with it. So why introduce it such to a, such an early age of, of children and sway their world perception or their perception of the world, should I say, in such a way so that it impacts every decision that they make. I, whenever I would even gift people, knowing that they had a boy or a girl, I would always get it gender neutral because then if there were other kids in the house or there weren't, irrelevant of the fact if there were or, or there weren't, they could play with it together. They could join with their cousins. They could join with whoever it was, their friends. So it wasn't really gender specific. And that's my take. What's your take, Michael? Um, I think we need to blend them completely and treat them as humans. Yeah. So if my daughter used to, um, and she changes a lot of the time. So she likes to be different. And I think sometimes it's just for being different sake. So she rejects pink now because it's too girly. So, you know, she's going through this phase now where she wants to wear black. And, you know, and that's, I say to her, oh, Bob, I like bright colours. And she's, well, it's not about you, Dad. I have to wear it because that, that's what, you know, I always used to say, but you've got to wear it, not me. So you choose. And so I've got to wear that. But... We even, um, I think, our early learning educators and our childcare people need to do a course on uh, gender stereotypes and avoid it. Um, a lot of the times in uh, the kindergartens and the childcare things, you'll have a boy's corner and a girl's corner and they segregate things because we worry the boys are a bit too rough and the girls might get hurt and the, you know, what the girls are doing. And so we start that segregation and that, you know, stereotyping from such an early age 
and it happens without um, us doing it. We even do the things where we sexualize their relationships where, you know, oh, is he your little boyfriend or is she your girlfriend? So straight away, we're setting up the expectation that you can't have a platonic friend of the opposite gender unless there's a romantic relationship at such a young age. And, you know, should your child not be heterosexual, you're making it even harder for them to come out at, at some stage. So, you know, we really do need to take the gender out of things. And I hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, that's rubbish. Boys need to know their boys and girls need to know their girls. And well, they do know, they know who they are and how they behave is what you're putting on them, not what exactly. they're, not what they really are. And, you know, we get a lot of, you know, oh, little boy playing with a dog. Yeah, that's terrible that he might grow up to be a father with a child that he wants to nurture and raise. Like, where is the harm in him playing with a doll? You know, you get a lot of, here in Australia, it's, should be out kicking a footy and stuff like that. And go, well, yeah, that'll set him up for life in what, being a footballer? Like, let him do what he wants to do. If he enjoys the creativity and the imagination shown when role-playing with dolls and things like that, it, it's wonderful. Kicking the footy around, there's some physical attributes and things like that that go with it, but not a lot of creativity in it. And I think that's the basis uh, that gets me every single time with this concept of double standards, that every single child or adult that's interested in a particular activity or concept or whatever it is, um, idea, uh, as far as like working, for example, I know you and I have spoken about this a lot, Michael. So when it comes to uh, maternal care and, and maternal leave uh, and paternal leave, why isn't there just a parenting leave as we've talked about before? Why does it have to be about uh, maternity only? Yes, as a mother, I can say that, yeah, I would benefit from nine months in some countries. Um, you can actually get nine months for some countries. You could do a year or up to two years. And in some countries, you've got three weeks, maximum three months, and that's it. And, um, and, and the point is, both the mom and the dad could benefit from that. Who knows? The dad might be the, the, the primary dad, the solo dad, hint, hint, Michael, like yourself, um, and, and or might be the solo mom like myself. So who knows what those conditions are and why would the laws be so set up in, in a way that fulfills this double standard for parents that don't create the distinction amongst themselves. So why should the law create distinctions? Why should the policies create distinctions around who can stay home with a child and who can't and for how long? Mm. It gets yeah. me every time. Yep. A another classic um, double standard is single mum versus single dad. Yes. There's still, there's still a stigma attached to single mums from from some there are some where you know we rightfully laud single mums or you know but it should be single parents for the dedication the sacrifice keeping it all together and managing to you know raise you know wonderful amazing kids under you know doing twice the work with half the resources exactly. but I know 
there are still those in the conservative world and some who of the older generation, I think it's looked on as the woman's failure of the marriage. Like there is that stigma. Yes. Yeah. Whereas me, my goodness, <laughs> I've had opportunities that wouldn't, and I'm seen as you must be such an amazing man to raise your daughter on your own. It's so wonderful and all the rest of it. And there's no stigma whatsoever with me. I'm seen as um, a step up from a, an average an average bloke and believe me I'm about as average as, as you can get yeah. but you know I've actually had so many mum friends say to me I can't believe all the fuss that's made over you and what you do when we've been doing it for you know, a million years from day dot and no one blinks an eyelid and that's why I'd say you know there's a double standard that shouldn't exist exactly. whatsoever and it seems like Parenting is the last bastion of contemporary society that we've failed to remove the gender lens from, that we're still happy to do it. You know, we still have mothering, uh, you know, to mother someone as a verb rather than a noun. Like parenting is the verb for mother and father, what we do. But for some reason, we have all of these unfair expectations that some of it is a consequence of the unconscious bias that we have things like maternal instinct and only a mother's love and we see it on advertising mothers know best 97 percent of mothers recommend you know xyz and the problem with that is while it seems congratulatory and um you know good to to praise mums for it it locks them into that outdated gender role but it also inflicts mum guilt. Yeah. Like I'm struggling with colic, sleep routines, sleep deprivation, breastfeeding, you know, just a million of the other normal, completely normal frustrations of trying to raise a new infant. Then all of a sudden it's, but I'm meant to have this innate instinct. Yeah. Am I flawed as a woman? Not only a, a mother and it's, I'd say that mum's got to learn exactly the same as dad's got to learn. Yeah. So we need to get rid of that maternal instinct. There's 100% a parental instinct that need to nurture, protect, to care where your heart just melts and all the rest of it. But to think that somehow that because biologically a mum carries that baby, I've even had women say, but we create life. So, well, no, not on your own, you don't. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, do we want to go back to when does, when does life start to exist? If we want to have that fundamental right to life type thing, you know, it's, so all of that stuff adds extra pressure. So when mum feels like, gee, I would like more than just being a mum, you know, I want my career, I want to use the years of education that I put getting my qualifications, I'm more than just this, then she's actually shamed sometimes by mums, other mums. Absolutely. You know, like one of the questions, but how will you manage with your kids? That there's the judgment to me as a dad. Yeah. There, yeah, I can take it a step further. So you want to play? You want to plan a play date, for example? And I've heard this from um, a couple of um, single moms and single dads too, or solo moms and solo dads. You want to plan a play date for your child? 
the thing is, um, as a solo mom, a lot of them will say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I can't because my husband or my partner is, isn't going to be, um, uh, isn't going to be comfortable with you being around because of the divorce concept. Or uh, as a solo dad, oh, but my partner isn't comfortable with you being around because you're single and I'm not. So who knows what you might do to me as if people are so, you know, easily swayed or moved by just a single human being around them, but they're forgetting the main point. It's the children. So they're depriving the children of the possibility of socializing and engaging with their friends or other children to, to just learn basic skills and be happy and engaged because of this social paradigm that they live by. It gets again, me every time. Yep, we've segregated into the, the men of the tribe in one corner and the women out in the other corner. They, the example you just gave, Reham, you know, I've often being a, a dad and the mums a lot of the times being the, the gatekeepers to the, the children, um, you know, it, it's slowly changing. There are more and more dads at school pickups and drop-offs and things like that. But um, I've, I've ceased to become Michael and I'm now Charlie's dad. You know, yeah. it's, and it's the same with a lot of the other kids' mums. It's, oh, you know, your Louise's mum yeah if I asked for a play date for Charlie because Charlie would say oh dad you know she'll come up with a little friend you know can we have a play date on the weekend I'd say oh great um here's my number give this to your mum and get her to give me a call and I still feel creepy now doing it but a lot of times it will be the dad that'll ring me up and it'll be well and I don't really know him or when I ask them, the mum, Charlie, like a play date, and it'll be, well, I'll see what my husband's when he's available. And, you know, a lot of times I've said, well, I don't really want to have a play date with him. I was thinking more about my daughter and your daughter. <laughs> but again, it's that, you know, because I don't really know them that well. Yeah. And you know, it's hard on, hard on Charlie as well. So there's that double standard there, the fact that um, it's quite okay to call a man out as either a little bit um, sleazy or a potential predator mm -hmm. or, and when you think about what you're saying about them, about their character, um, when I was banned from my daughter's ballet concert because I was a male, yeah. the reason they cited originally was child protection. We can't have a man backstage whether a little girl's getting undressed. And you know, I've even had friends say, well, you can understand it. And I said, well, no, I, I can't at all. I was a swim teacher for about 18 years. So I have what's called here in Australia, my working with children check. So you've got to be licensed to be, but I'm trusted with other people's kids as well as my own. But every child backstage at that concert was with a parent. So, and there were two little boys in the thing. So my retort was, well, what about other two little boys uncomfortable with all the women backstage. And then I was told, well, no, that's different. And I said, it makes it different. Yeah. I, I don't understand why it's different. And then I was told, well, it just is. And I said, well, you know, I'm not talking to a five-year-old here. That's not a reason. So I've got a working with children check. So I'm just as safe to be around my own daughter. So if we're talking child protection, Every child backstage will be with a parent except for my daughter. 
So who's protecting my daughter? Yeah. And they said, well, we will. We'll look after her. I said, yeah, but you're not looking after everyone else's child. So can you see the double standard here? I don't want special treatment. I just want the normal treatment that's dished out to everyone else. And you're saying, because of my gender and because of my family makeup, my daughter can't be here. And you know she can't have a parent to share her excitement or help her prepare or anything like that. Her experience has got to be different from everyone else's because our family makeup is different. Yeah. At that stage here in Australia, we were just going through our marriage equality debate and we were saying we were going to have a plebiscite so the nation was going to have a say on whether we approved of you know, other people's choices and uh, who, who they are. And I think that actually was counterproductive as well because, you know, who are we to have a vote on, on them? But that's why I explained to them. I said, one day you're going to have two mums, two dads, all different makeups. Like the nuclear family is, is gone as we know it with marriages falling over all the rest of it. This is a chance to get on the front foot here and be welcoming and inclusive and, you know, realise that this is going to affect my daughter, like for the rest of her life for a makeup. So we can't have that double standard. And it hit the media and it went nuts worldwide. And, you know, we, we got it overturned. But that's what I'm saying. We've got to be very careful with these double standards. But the fact that they were so comfortable in saying that, oh, you know, you could be a predator. I wouldn't accuse someone of that so easily, so flippantly, exactly. without a, a second thought. Um, it's sort of like saying to, I don't know, someone at work, hey, we're going to put cameras up to make sure that you're working, that you're doing what you're meant to be doing. We wouldn't have that. We don't like the government intervening or tracking us or collecting information on us because of our privacy. And, you know, it's, well, who are you to think that I'm doing, I'm not doing anything wrong. So you shouldn't think I'm doing anything wrong. So there's a double standard that, you know, has real world impacts as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another double standard that comes to mind. I know, Michael, our previous episode was on physical health, body image. How have you seen being, you know, our resident expert on physical health and everything under the sun when it comes to um, being healthy? Um, how has that impacted you, for example, and those around you, uh, those that you coach and train? Yeah, the um, it's funny. It, it's this isn't so much a double standard, but just a different in perception. Okay, men men on general tend to have a lot higher opinion of their uh, physical shape yeah. than what is justified. Yes. And women seem to have a lot worse opinion of their um, physical condition than what is justified. You know, uh, the, the number of um, women that I've trained over the years who that's, I keep saying you, just you're kidding yourself that you're so hard on yourself that you know you really need these up because what you can do and your performance and your strength and your appearance you might not be happy with it and that's all that matters but I don't think if we change it significantly 
that it's going to make that much of a difference to how you feel about yourself mm. because it's more about your self-image than your actual image because if we wanted to do it on a comparison thing, I can compare you to 90% of the people and you're right in the middle, you you know, chuffing along right on average, whereas a lot of the blokes, you know, they're like, oh, I'm still wearing the same size pants as what I used to when I was 18. It, yeah, but they're done up around the top of your thighs. I can see your butt crack from a mile away. Like, you know, give it up. And, you know, it's just, you know, it, it's really, really funny. But I think women feel like they're being judged more on their, um, by others. So it's an outward, um, it's an outward judgment that's fueling their internal uh, story that they're telling themselves more than their actual story. Whereas with men, it's the other way around. It's an internal story they're telling themselves that they think they've convinced everyone externally that and men will put up nah mate like it's fine I, you know i could lose it if i wanted to nah like, you know whereas yeah so that's a real um dichotomy in in men and women's physical i i see it as a double standard when it comes to for example the magazines the media tv shows entertainment music and how women's bodies have been so subject, subjugated to a particular dimension as being the dimension to be. And then anything less than or more than is just undesirable. As opposed to men who, like you were saying, they might be wearing the same size that they were wearing when they were much younger. However, their, their body shape has changed even though they fit into those same pants or, or trousers. And nobody says anything about it, nor are they judged as heavily as women are. And that's where the double standard lies for me, as I've seen it again and again and again. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree, agree with that. But we're also, um, we, we, we're judged by others way too way too much regardless but we do a little bit of judgy as well i think that's why reality tv is so uh, yeah so popular because we can sit back and, and judge in the comfort of our our own home um yeah. but yeah another double standard that comes down to men and women is and i heard this a lot with uh you may have heard of him uh, donald trump and uh sort of boris johnson where it's you know it, Imagine if it was a female leader that had had six kids to three different women and all of these things. And the thing that I don't understand with a double standard, uh, when we call it out like that, and it was called out a lot, apart from the harm it does to the partner. So you may think you're calling out the men. Yeah. How does the partner of that Man. uh, male feel? How do the children of that man feel but are we upset that the standard isn't being applied such a vicious arbitrary unjust standard isn't applied across the board or are we upset that the standard exists at all because no one should be judged for things like that and it's a bit of a um you know well imagine if a woman well we haven't seen a woman 
with that. So it's it's a uh, hyper, you know, it, it's it's a fictional comparison. Yeah. Or it's a straw man argument, is what yeah. it is. So it's a hypothetical, know, yeah, yeah, hypothetical. But you know, and the same with uh, Emmanuel Macron. A lot of people judged him for the age of his his partner, um, yeah, partner. And she's incredible. Another double standard is when we say, you know, she's a fantastic female leader. Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern. I'm a massive fan of, of these women, but it annoys me because we never hear he's a great male leader. Yeah. Unless he exhibits something that people would call a feminine trait, but it's not a feminine trait. It's a good trait. And Jacinda Ardern isn't a great female leader. She's a bloody brilliant leader, full Period. stop. Exactly. Not because of agenda, not despite agenda. And, you know, don't downplay it and say, well, you know, it's her, her uh, gender has given her some sort of advantage. It's her talent application and, and uh, you know, intelligence that has made her a great leader. And when they say, oh, but female leaders are more empathetic. Well, no, good leaders are more empathetic. Exactly. So, and I think a lot of the reason why when we do get amazing leaders like Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel and some of the, you know, uh, what's her name, head of the International Monetary Fund and... I'm a, uh, I can't think of her name right now, but I know who you're talking about, yeah. But when, when we do get fantastic leaders who happen to be uh, females, I think it's for the same reason why we get great leaders who are men. It's because of the hard yards they've done on the way up. And a lot of women have to overcome significant, significant hurdles, barriers, mm -hmm. challenges, biases. All of those things do exist 100%. So I think when a woman does rise to the top through all those battles and hurdles, her skill level is off the chart. Whereas there are a lot of men who rise up through cronyism, attachments, you know, knowing the right people, going to the right schools, and they rise up with less than talent, but more through connections and because, well, you know, he's one of us, let's do him a bit of a favour, and they're inept. Now, they're not inept because they're males. No. They rose to their position because they had connections and being a male may have helped them, but it's actually hindered their development of the skill set needed to be in the position they're in. I agree. So that double standard, we call out fantastic female leaders and terrible, he's a terrible leader because he's a male. Let's get rid of that gender. Like she's it's the character. It's not yeah. the gender. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how about uh, the double standard around philanthropy? I know you and I have spoken about this before where it's, it's a concept that is only defined by um, how much money we give, how much power we allocate, for example, or how many resources we donate to a particular cause or people. But there's so much more to philanthropy that you and I have spoken about um, before this podcast. Do you wanna share some of those thoughts? Yeah. I and how it's a double standard in and of itself? Double standard big time. We get uh, Bill Gates, amazing human being doing great stuff, but called the, the devil incarnate by a lot of people because, you know, they just think he's trying to control the world and all the rest of it. 
he's giving away all of his money, just leaving a little bit for his kids. Warren Buffett is another one. And then we've got someone like um, Jeff Bezos, yeah. who I forget how much his wealth has increased during this uh, pandemic. Um, yeah. But hoarded it all. So uh, a philanthropist, I looked it up the other day. It's actually called a superior, I think, the, from the Greek to mean a superior being. So the fact that we attach it to money, the money is the easy thing to give away when you do it. And especially we have one brilliant man here owns a lot of mining tenements and, you know, he gave away $70 million and he still got rubbished on Twitter. So, oh, that's just so he doesn't have to pay tax and he doesn't, but he also employs a lot of, he only employs indigenous people and does a lot of land generation because he mines on their things. And he's saying, oh, that's because of his guilt. But he doesn't have to do any of that. But my thing with philanthropy is we can be philanthropic with our time, which is a lot harder than our money. We can be philanthropic with our influence so and philanthropic with our inclusion so we can look to share it and bring people in who might be othered or marginalized we can Absolutely. be philanthropic with our our joy and contentment we can look to help people um you know feel a little bit better about themselves because we feel good anything that we have not even it doesn't even have to be an abundance in but something that we feel that we would like other people to have some of too because it's great for us. It's that altruism where we go, you know what? There's somebody over there in the corner on their own. Yeah. I'm going to be philanthropic with my connection and I'm going to go and I'm going to listen. I'm going to try and drag them in and connect them with everyone. We can be philanthropic with working it as you do with the soup kitchen. We can be philanthropic with our time, just sitting and listening to somebody. Exactly. Exactly. It's about the abundance. It's less about the hoarding, as we were talking about before as well. It's about that feeling of um, knowing that you can create uh, space for others to do good or well, better, however it looks for themselves. But one thing that we do want to bring attention to um, that could be a double standard potentially is the fact that is anything really given wholeheartedly without any return. So is it really altruistic? In, in classical terms, we could say potentially, but realistically speaking, there's always a secondary gain. So like you were mentioning the soup kitchens um, for myself when I was in the States, uh, one of the things that I did was I volunteered at the soup kitchens. And when I was doing that, there was always that secondary gain. At first glance, I didn't realize it and that was to feel good about serving others but that secondary gain kept me going back again and again and again it, it motivated me towards being philanthropic with my time and my energy um, but that gain is always there so we have to be conscious that that gain doesn't overtake the the, the abundance that we're able to provide others at the same time and that's when it becomes potentially a double standard because then we're gaining more than we're giving. And it becomes about how it makes us feel less the work and the energy and the time and the resources and the connections and the money that we're offering others. What are your thoughts, Michael? 
Yeah, I, I think it comes down to that internalized values. Yeah. So it's that internalized, yes. Yeah. And sometimes our values and I see it a lot in the space I work in in the equality space. Exactly. Becomes transactional. Yeah. Or um, contingent. I will, you know, behave this way, they behave that way. I will treat him with respect if she treats me with respect. I will I will be polite to somebody who's polite to me and even the old, you know, you've got to earn my respect. Well, I'd rather think of it that you have to earn my disrespect. So, you know, everyone is thinking, but my, my behaviour and my values aren't going to change based on somebody else's um, behavior. They've got to be internalized, rock solid. They've got to be your sat nav, your default operating system, where it's going to be. And it's not saying that uh, you let somebody walk all over you or be rude to you or anything like that, but you don't respond in kind. So you don't say, well, it was okay. He, he was abusive to me. So now I'm going to retaliate. It's, he was abusive to me. I'm not going to accept it. I'm going to make clear that he knows it. And I'm going to tell him that's it. You know, I'm sorry, but that's unacceptable. I, I can't accept it. You know, please don't do it again. If it happens again, I'm sorry. I thought I was clear. You're out of here. So, you know, just, I'd say we don't, don't think that uh, I'm saying, you know, you just have to be nice, be nice, be nice. You've you got to be You firm. don't have to be anybody's doormat. No, not at all. And never. And, you know, you can make it clear because sometimes people don't realize, you know, they've, they've overstepped the mark. So if, if somebody takes offense at something that you do, you can't be offended that they've been offended because you don't know what their cultural, what stories, what their experience, what their their subjective reality is. Exactly. So if it wasn't your intention to cause offence, you apologise in my books. It's just, I'm sorry, I didn't realise. Yeah. I didn't mean offence. I'm sorry you took offence and I apologise unreservedly. It was never my intention to offend you. And then you stop it there. You don't have to explain yourself because... My dad always used to tell me, never ruin a good apology with an excuse. Yes. Because it, it's you're not trying to excuse it because you don't need to. Because by excusing it, you're trying to justify it. So, Which, which lowers the value of the apology. Apology was my area of study um, yeah. from the concept of conflict resolution and who makes a real apology and what consists of a real apology. So absolutely, the minute that you start putting in the why I'm apologizing so that I can justify it to myself component to the to the apology, it, it lowers the value of the apology a hundred times fold. So it's almost like I apologize, but it really was your fault. Yeah. In other words, I apologize, but you misunderstood. So it's not really taking accountability or responsibility, but it's also deflecting accountability and responsibility onto the other person. And that's what takes away from that whole value of the apology and makes it a double standard. Yep. Now, because you brought up about your conflict re- resolution, I'm going to give you a, a, a problem here. What happens when, because I've had this happen where I've gone, look, I'm, I'm sorry. It's 100% sorry. And then when they ask, but why do you 
did it. And my response was normally, well, it doesn't matter why I did it. If, if you feel it was wrong, then I'm sorry, because the last thing I want to do is, is upset you. So I'm sorry, but you need to tell me why you did it. And then it would be, but it doesn't matter why I did it. Yeah. It just matters that you found that it was wrong. So I'm sorry. Yeah. You don't respect me enough to explain yourself. And it's like, but uh, th there's no explaining to do it. It's, it was wrong and I'm sorry. Yeah. And then it would, they would want to know why. And that why isn't necessarily part of the apology, but it can add to it. And I'll explain. So I know you've given, uh, and I'm shooting myself in the foot because with my son, I always have to tell him when you apologize, you have to explain why you're apologizing. So I need to be very careful of how I, I present this. Um, so for example, the example that you had given earlier, uh, where you were being gentlemanly and opening the door, you and Charlie were together and one of you was going to open the door. You happened to be the person that opened the door for the, for the woman that was passing by. And she was offended and genuinely offended by you opening the door. And that happens in this day and age and that's okay. And we're not talking about feminism or masculinity or anything of that nature. We're just talking about being a perfect gentleman, being conscientious of somebody walking close to the door and being careful and kind, you know, that they don't hurt themselves. And, you know, you and Charlie are, are fulfilling the value of being, um, you know, um, sensitive and empathetic and opening the door for this, for this woman. Now she may have in the scenario that you were getting, she may have been insulted, which you shared. She was, for example, when you told the story and, and so you apologized and said, you know, I didn't mean offense. I genuinely didn't intend that to be the case. I did it because, so I did it because could be justification, but here it's also the intent and the why because of how it's said in the context of what, when it's said. Mm -hmm. And for her, because you've shared that she was not happy, she didn't care. She felt independent and wanted to open the door for herself and knew she could do it and shared it with you. So she wasn't even hearing your apology. That's a different scenario because she's already invested in the position she's in, not listening to the interest that you're providing. So she's stuck in her mindset about I'm independent and I don't need a man to open the door for me. Had the situation been reversed and Charlie was the one that opened it, your daughter, I'm not sure if the response would be the same. Mm. But in this scenario, she couldn't accept that apology. So with the, with the previous example that you were mentioning, this person that you were speaking to that wanted to know why, sometimes people want to know why because they want to be sure it's a sincere apology and that becomes the formula in which they define it's a sincere apology. So if it has that component of my intent was not justification, as in like, I did it because you made me or I did it because you pressured me. So it's deflection, but it's, I did it because my intent was, my intention, my, my interest around this situation was to open the door for you. And I found that it it offended you. So therefore, um, I apologize. That is a complete apology. 
because you have recognition of what you did. You've also apologized for what it is that offended someone. You've recognized their position um, and interest in the situation, which was to feel offended because they felt that they were independent and able to open the door on their own. And you've kind of solidified it by explaining where you stood in, in the realm of what offended them. And you were sincere about it. That's the last component, the sincerity. Now, not everybody will accept that. And everybody's definition of apologies are different as well. And maybe we could talk about that on another topic altogether. Because if you look at history and you see the apologies, I know the time when I was studying this, uh, Bill Clinton was apologizing for Monica Lewinsky's scandal, or his scandal, sorry, with Monica Lewinsky. The apology was not a full apology. It was a deflection of responsibility completely. And what's amazing is people kept asking him why, similar situation as you're, you're saying. And because he couldn't give a why that was suitable to satiate people's hunger for knowledge, it was never equal to an apology. Whether his apology was real or not, that's irrelevant. The point is, you're saying, why do I have to tell you? Because some people's equation for apologies consists of a why. And without the why, it's not sincere. It's not true. Long answer for a short question. Uh, another double standard. And our final a, one for today. Yeah. Come on. Is around religions. Do share. Um, the Catholic Church, cops a bad rap. Um, you know, they're very big on telling whole of society how to live and yet won't take any advice back um, from society. They don't conform to social expectations. They, uh, you know, they're one that struggled with apologies for a long time here. We've just had a Royal Commission in Australia into child abuse and it was horrific listening and they still came out at the end of it. And I think there was 160 something recommendations made by the commission and they still haven't acted on it and they keep citing canon law um, and things like that. They, they have what's called the seal of the confessional where it was proven in the Royal Commission that a priest was going into confession admitting that he was abusing children and was never reported because the seal of the confessional is sacred. So they, they won't do it. They've still refused to do it, even though the commission recommends that there's mandatory reporting. Now, as I said, I was a swim teacher for a long time. We have mandatory reporting uh, conditions placed on us, whereas yes. We see a bruise on a child. If we have a child say something to us, we have to make a report that then goes up to the child protection yeah. and they're the ones that investigate it. But if we've found that uh, we didn't do it, we're in trouble and the church refuses to do it. Yet the church wants to tell everyone else how they should live, what values they should follow. So that that's a big double standard. And or the is it hypocrisy? Line, it, yeah, it, it. That's the thing. So the bottom line with all of these double standards, we're bringing them up so that you can each pay attention as we are also um, personally paying attention to the double standards that we apply in our lives.
uh, consciously or unconsciously and the ones that are in society and then decide how do we want to show up in relation to each of them so do we want to live a life of hypocrisy or do we want a life filled with envy and function from that space do we want a life that's deflecting responsibility and and you know hiding away from accountability so that we can live the easier life now what's the cost to us with that easier life so these are questions that are posed by Michael and I to get your mind thinking about what it is that we do and the impact that we have on others in our lives when it comes to potential double standards. These are conversation starters with blokes, their children and women that support them. It's about many men and many conversations. Follow, like, and share. Also don't hesitate to comment below. How are you reflecting and deciding upon the double standards that occur in your life? And what are you going to do about them? See you on our next podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.